Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. soundtrack do we probably young hearts run free <laughs> never be lonely so that love me love me say that you love me feel me feel I me. had a dream last night <laughs> I can't get my love I like that it's really jumping in with yes. the <laughs> it was Really good. Jackie, you do the love song that the choir sings? No, I won't. <laughs> That's because Prince. I can't sing the way the children sing. They oh, but I can say, be not so long to speak. I love to die. <laughs> All right, Bella, please. Oh, she, I you, long she to is die. being a bit of a Bella in this movie. Don't you for I mean, it, I don't I know it's been a minute. We're not gonna talk about just Twilight. I know that <laughs> I do usually turn everything into Twilight, but um um, she is obsessed with Romeo and Juliet, so what? it true. came from Wait a something. Second. I, I know. will I know. say, watching Romeo and Juliet, I honestly have to admit, I maybe saw Romeo and Juliet back in the day. I was not obsessed. I saw it like once, but I appreciated it. But I was also like, again, I think this speaks towards the what was for girls and what was for boys. Oh, 100%. And uh, watching it again, I A, thought to myself, thank God I'm not a teenager anymore, but also <laughs> thought to myself, holy shit, Boz Lerman captured teen, being a teenager in a motherfucking bottle so perfectly and also managed to probably do the most faithful filmic version of a Shakespeare play. Right. In the sense uh, that we'll get into soon about really what Shakespeare actually was about as an entertainer, as opposed to what I think is the bizarre. Um, snootiness, yeah, gatekeepiness of the Shakespeare lover. I think he was much more of like a punk rocker than anything else. Well, or like an artist, a musician. He was just poor as shit. He was yeah. writing. He was writing about what he imagined the the rich lived like, and he wrote for the people. Yeah, yeah. and so that's why it is. It does bridge the gap between classes, or that is what his intention was eventually. Because you know the. Glo- Oh, he's like performing. They eventually performed it at the Globe and that yes. kind of stuff. But at the time, William Shakespeare didn't make fucking shit. Yeah, and all, uh, first of all, she didn't make shit. Interesting. 
She, what? the bard is a woman. You haven't heard that theory? Or that the bard that is, is like, like 12, 12 people. 12 people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Either yes. way. Uh, uh, and we will be referring to him as the bard all, oh, all episode oh no. as well. No. Yes, that no. is right. Holding the Shakespeare lover has appeared before you. This really did bring my Shakespeare nerd out, but also brought my re-brought out my hatred of Shakespeare nerds. And, and I love how, because, okay, another part, element for me that I thought a lot about was my theater teacher hated this movie. And by the way, thanks, Mr. Stallworth. It was really great for you to hate on this movie, but it was maybe the one way you could have gotten your class into, Shakes, into William Shakespeare's Whoa. work. I think you're right, yeah. But he hated this movie. He hated the scream acting, but I'm going to go ahead and say the scream acting is, again, lightning in a bottle of being a teenager. And even though it does seem a little extreme... It is actually like watching Claire Danes screaming the top of her lungs, like right, like in that kind of mm-hmm. ladder part of the movie. I was just like, oh my God, I feel like a teenager again all, all, all of a sudden. She longs to die, man. I get it. He kind of knocked it for like the scream acting and this, that, and the other. And he was like, it's not a, tr-, you know, whatever, like being a snooty Shakespeare person. And again, it was like, uh, I think A, he's wrong. And B, that like, th- that was the perfect cross between. What, what's interesting to me is thinking back on like what Shakespeare would bring to the globe. And I'm also going to go and throw this Shakespeare nerd thing at you guys. I saw a play at the globe, and I will say this right now. There are two instances when I felt like I fully understood a Shakespeare play in a sitting of one. And that would be Taming of the Shrew at the Globe and this motherfucking movie. And I, I want to relate the two because, because, again, I do believe that Shakespeare wrote his plays for the groundlings. And that is like I was in the groundlings. You were, you're standing the whole time, you're, but you're right up front. They're not playing the play to each other. They're not indulging. They're actually playing the play to you. And there's a lot of audience involvement. And there's a lot of effort to grab the attention of every single person in the audience whether you're in the top stands whether you're the queen or whether you're you're this a dude covered in dirt trying to just get that play play lay lay from them sex workers down there in the mud pits everybody was engrossed and i think that this movie is the only time i have felt that and yes i'm i'm including uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet in that. Whoa. I'm including a lot of really well-done wow. Shakespeare productions. It's more like Colden Ranspear. Right? It is. No, I'm, I'm done. I've said my piece, but also... <laughs> I, will, I do have a question. So when you saw um, Taming of the Shrew with the Globe, were people having sex in the mud down front? Because it would <laughs> be wish. very interesting to watch I them still love, try to yes. maintain Cosplay? the attention of yes. the audience while... <laughs> Sex workers are working in the mud. I, in front I say of you the should stage. fully cosplay it. If you're gonna do it, that do it right. Do it all the way. So there was an actual person giving a person blowjob, but there was a guy walking around with a bunch of pocket pussies going blowjobs. Got your blowjobs, eh? And it. you would buy a pocket pussy and you could fuck the pocket pussy while it's quieter than so getting an like, actual blowjob. It's like it's like the <laughs> Ren Fair version. Of that time yes. period, it is as horny as a Rin Fair is. Absolutely, one hundred percent, and it's phony. It's I, not realistic to the reality. But you're right; it is holding ranch spear much. Uh, what about you two? Because I feel like this movie connects even deeper with the two. Connects of you. to my fucking loins. loins. Yeah. This is Natalie's <laughs> loins, fully and completely. We talked about this. So this is a part of this. Romeo and Juliet is part of the Red Curtain trilogy of Baz Luhrmann's, which is strictly ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, and Mulan. Rouge. Now, I I do think 
that that the slight age difference between us of mm-hmm. just the small amount that it is, I was obsessed with Moulin Rouge right. in the way that you were obsessed with Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Now, I did, I do love Romeo and Juliet. I do, I love this fucking version of it. And especially now watching it as an older person, as someone that the last time I watched it, I was definitely more in the like theater nerd part of my life. So I thought that it was cool and fun but I didn't think that it was what I wanted from my experience with it. Right. And that's dumb to say because <laughs> yeah, it's hot as shit. I agree shit. with you. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I was in the exact right age group for this movie to this – this was made for me because I was, I think, 13 when this came out. So I saw it in the theater. It was my complete and utter sexual awakening. Uh, it was my fashion decisions – for several years yes. to come, it was the soundtrack was everything to me, and also one of my first CDs I ever owned. And I still love that fucking soundtrack. And I was trying to find a picture. Um, I hopefully I can find it to put on Instagram. But um, on my, I had no idea that the all of the imagery from it was completely religious because I had no experience in religion. So all like the religion, religious iconography that's like on the CD case, the Virgin Mary, with the and sacred the, heart. Yeah. I thought that was just from the movie and I was obsessed <laughs> with it. And I had it painted on my childhood dresser and nail polish, like huge. Oh my God. And it was like, I was obsessed with this movie and with wanting to kiss Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. So this is, was this, did you, were you into Leo before that? Did, did, no. were you, did you see basketball diaries? Did you want to fuck him in? Uh, who's eating Gilbert grape? Oh, no. Yeah, None that of that. was it. It was well, the Gilbert Grape that did it. He's very talented. <laughs> oh my God, yes. Even though you can't do that anymore, he fucking crushed that He did that a good part. job at it. Yeah. That's a great movie. You should go rewatch it. It's, Bums so, me. it's, it's good. It's one of those movies that just puts me to weird Yeah, but movie. Johnny Depp in that movie, hubba, bubba, bubba. I did watch that movie way too often, but I did it for Johnny <laughs> Depp. Between that movie and Benny and June, oh, yeah, yeah. Don't even get me woo. started. But I will say... I didn't really realize how into keeping keeping Romeo and Juliet present yes. in in the script of Baz Luhrmann's adaptation of it that Baz Luhrmann really wanted to keep it. I don't think that that sentence made sense, but I think you get what I mean. Stay, he wanted to stay faithful it. to the original works of William Shakespeare, and actually, his intention was, "I want to make." And I, I have the quote, and I'm sure I'll read it in a little bit. But I want to make a movie that I, the movie that I think Shakespeare would have made. Yeah. I think a lot of people misconceived it and thought, "Oh, this is Baz Luhrmann like coming in and Lermaning it up and like fucking it all up, Although and this making a, it crazy." He wasn't Lerman yet. He this yeah. was because strictly ballroom was not this style at all. No, I saw Strictly Ballroom as a little kid with my grandma in the theater and uh, I loved it, but it wasn't it wasn't this sort of hyper colored coked up culture. Yeah, it was. It's more about it's like more of like a nerdy movie. Yeah, anything. And and with this, he's just like and people say MTV, which is funny because he kind of laughs at that. because He's like, I never worked at MTV like I never like made it like thinking it was an MTV movie. But the way that he speeds things up and the way that the the camera goes, you sometimes you feel like you're watching Cribs. I mean, yeah, it's like it's you're on a bunch of drugs. Yeah, the way the camera moves, it just goes. But this this was the introduction to his style. Like people associate Moulin Rouge, I think, with him more than anything but Romeo and Juliet was when he showed the world that he had this 
this kind of imagery in him. Well, and also the layers that he added because you're you're bringing up the the how he created religion inside of the movie in a way that is a pop culture version of religion. That made me a 13-year-old, very horny, and had no idea it was religious. <laughs> but really, it's the idea of piety versus consumerism versus classism it, and the way that down to every single thing that the people were wearing were all Prada, Gucci, uh, oh, Yves Saint Laurent. Like, it so was, good. The fashion was there. Oh, I can't wait to talk about the um, the costume design oh my God. of this so movie. Good. But it's, I read multiple, like, doctorate essays talking about this movie. Like, like that kind yeah. of shit of, of people have been studying what he did with this movie and comparing it to all the different iterations of Romeo and Juliet that it holds up. And in fact, many people do believe that Boslerman did do his intention in modernizing a tale as old as time. Yeah. And he did a great job with it. And actually, and actually like we were talking about before we started recording, he captured what it actually means to be a, like a sullen teenager, overly dramatic in love. And when a lot of the other Romeo and Juliet iterations came around, they tried to make it like soft and sweet and romantic. And in, in reality, it was it's a hysterical thing to do. Right. Like, everything that they were doing were based on wanting to fuck each other essentially. It's just that, that it, it captures the absolute horniness that it is to be a teenager in a bottle yeah. and the rage and the rage and yeah, the, the hormones. The, yeah, just the absolute hormones. Also recognizing that Shakespeare was making fun of young love yes. and Romeo and it's Juliet. It's not supposed he, to be. It's no, so it's not supposed to be like this true romance. It's no. the idea that he was in love with Rosalind and that he was going, he would die for her and then cut to snap hours later. He's in love with Juliet yes. and he will die for Juliet and she will <laughs> die for him as well. And it is the idea that young love, although it is beautiful, it's dumb as yeah, and also, <laughs> as an adult watching it, uh, that very classic, uh, amazing scene where they're seeing each other in the fish tank, and they're, this is when they're falling in love, me as an adult going, he is tripping face right now. Like, yeah. they're on, they are, they are fucking, he's on drugs. I've been at a party it, on, on drugs like that and, oh, and seen I've fallen someone in love, and she's, and in love yeah. with somebody. And she's dressed like an angel and he sees her in the water. This is nonsense. Like, <laughs> they, they decide to get married. They've never even seen each other in street clothes before. Right, you know? right, right. And also, I want to. I also wanted to mention when we were talking about the religious iconography, also it, it, the setting of this is American Mafia, setting right and and i think speaks towards the interesting things that happen with mafia and italian like catholicism intenseness yeah. and yet they're still like they're like murdering left and right and with you know blasting also, people away you know, but also when they're throwing a party Jesus, they're yeah. throwing a party and they see the enemy they're like you're not ruining my party yeah let them have fun tonight yeah. <laughs> we'll fucking kill them tomorrow we'll kill them tomorrow what does it matter that the idea of partying is higher up on their list of being faithful to their religion so it is <laughs> tongue-in-cheek even down to the fact that they filmed the um, part of the movie in Veracruz, Mexico, which the city whose full name is La Via Rica de la Veracruz, which is the rich town of the True Cross. And so the idea, like, down to where they said it, yeah. Lerman was trying to really show that religion 
is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Or at least get across the idea that, that it's reli- hypocritical that, and that it's yeah, hypocritical. I apologize. It's not bullshit. It's hypocritical in, it's in in especially when up to a point that you are having neon signs of your crosses. But how cool are those crosses though? Right, right. Give They're me a neon cross. What was it about the nineties and the neon cross? You also had like seven. I feel like there were so many movies that had that neon creepy crossing, and I don't know why it creeps me out so much. Because it's uh, fucked. It's cr- it's exactly what Jackie's saying. It's it's taking this horrific image that's been turned into an ideology thing, and then making it like, like uh, snazzy. Yeah, making it like um, uh, what's it called? Snazzy's corporate, a like good corporate. Word for it. <laughs> making it corporate. Uh, available to purchase. Right. Essentially, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's very, very fascinating. And again, I want to just go back to at the end of the day, for me personally, I judge the worth of a Shakespeare production on how well I understood what was being said at all times. And I think that this film, A, is amazing that it stayed truth, faithful to the original dialogue, especially considering that this was like a massive risk to take for your next big movie, really your first big movie with now that your name's on the map with Strictly Ballroom, to stay faithful to it, and then to pull that off really well. I'm going to say... You know, as as wild and 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 just poetic and iambic pentameter-y Shakespeare's prose is, now difficult it can be to unpack. I don't think there was a sentence in this film that I didn't fully comprehend yeah. within the scope of what was going on. And it that is really, so rare for yeah. me. So, so rare. I've seen so many Shakespeare productions. I've studied Shakespeare's plays. And I'm not going to sit here, and I think a lot of people like to sit here who have done that and be like, oh, yeah, I totally understand the bard's work and everything. These, You know what I mean? And blah, 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 blah. And honestly, again, I've only seen two productions where I actually understood what the fuck was being said, and this was one of them. So Yeah, um, I, I, I yeah. think the direction of it was done so well, and also the just the, the portrayals by the actors are so good, especially for some of them being Ugh, so young. Especially Mercutio. And Woo! again, and I'm going to go and say there's... I will also say, though, there is a lot of scream acting, and I mm-hmm. definitely give it a pass because I do feel like it captures being a teenager, but there is a lot of screen, scream There's acting. a lot of scream acting. I mean, I, I got to tell you, um, Harold Perrineau, like, his performance. Mercutio, Mercutio yeah. Incredible. Beyond that, his, again, the sexuality awakening of him in drag as right. a kid, um, and, of course, we got to mention Darling Wazamo. Woo! Yes. Um, but him doing that... Um, the the what's it called? Is it a soliloquy? Whenever he's doing the uh, about the yes, I believe that is a what's well, a monologue. A soliloquy monologue. is Mon- to, to no one, and a monologue is oh, okay. Someone what, when he's wow. Now we got the real one in yeah, the you want to talk some theater? All right, <laughs> uh, excuse me, I have a theater degree. Um, <laughs> this is the only time it comes in handy. That Literally the only out time to an audience, and you know, and 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 speaking up and out. That's it. Well, his monologue about, uh, you know, when he's telling the, the tale of the, the fairy queen and he's, he's taking drugs and he starts screaming into the, the ocean. I just, I still just love it so yes, much. I'm just like, incredible. give me more of it, please. I, he does some scream acting, but he also finds the levels really well. Definitely. And, and, and I will say the quiet moments in this too are very well done. Either way. Mm-hmm. All right. We should definitely get into it. Uh, we have gushed the gush. Now let's slush the slush. Let's slush the slush because Holden is about to go down theater row right <laughs> Oh now. yeah. Let's start. You want to start with the Bard's original works? Oh, no. Yes, absolutely. I'll start there. Oh, Before we get into Boz Lerman, let's talk about the Bard. 
Though these two characters are now timeless archetypal lovers, of course I'm talking about Romeo and Juliet, whatever. Their tale was borrowed from a lot of influences, particularly that of Pyramus and Thisbe and Ovid's Metamorphosis, and I AD'd a production of that back in college, by the way, just throwing it out there so I may actually have some more theater nerd cred than Jackie. Whoa. Uh, wow. I was in a gender-bent performance of The Birds by Aristophanes, <laughs> wow. and I was the lead in it, so... <laughs> Is this a real Shakespeare off? Yes, here? absolutely. Except that was Aristophanes. But still, oh, uh, wow. Cool. So before we talk about <laughs> Dolce and Gabbana, uh, Jackie and I will be competing for biggest Shakespeare nerd, and then we'll get into that stuff. And uh, also, You win Shakespeare nerd. I will give you Shakespeare nerd. Uh, also, in ancient Greece, the story of Fisiaka, Ephesiaka, Contained a separation of lovers, say it. and it also contained a potion that gives one death-like sleep, and all these things are going to come together a little bit later. Dante mentions, by the way, Montagues and Capulets in his Divine Comedy. Dante, of course, Italian, uh, and he stated in the Divine Comedy, one lot already grieving, the other in fear, and mm. has them locked in endless warfare, even though that was based on... Um, a di- there was no like lover thing or anything like that. It was it was like a political thing in his book, but either way, I oh, think it was pulled from there. I didn't realize that the actual story Shakespeare based her play on was of Mariotto and Janosa by Masuccio Salamitano, published back in 1476. And though the names are different, there still exists within a se- within a secret marriage, colluding friar, a mm. fight resulting in the death of a prominent citizen. Mariotto's exile, Janotza's forced marriage, the potion plot, and a crucial message that does not make it in time, which results in the beheading of Mariotto and Janotza literally laying on the floor until she dies from grief. I just, I'm going to die. I'm just going to lay on the floor in this forest until I die of grief. A little bit of a bella. (laughs) Now, Lerman had said about Shakespeare, the genius of Shakespeare is not his stories. He didn't write Romeo and Juliet. He stole a long poem that was based on an Italian novella. He stole it, but his genius is his understanding of the human condition and his ability with words. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it is, even then people were writing about how bad this nobody poet ripped off these great works of art and put them in a trashy theater. The undeniable fact about Shakespeare was that he wrote nonstop and he was a hardcore entertainer through his stories. Nonetheless, one of his greatest assets was an incredibly resonant, clever use of language, but it was just an asset to him. His writing also had incredible spectacle, sword fighting, energy, comedy, and body scenes. So these were the colors in his palette that he used to attack to absolutely embrace and engage his audience, remembering that they're all selling pigs and goats and 90% of them are completely drunk. I mean, the savagery of his storytelling and the absolute intensity of his devices are something that is scientifically existent in the text. I love that quote. I would like to say I'm very thankful that Shakespeare didn't have Twitter <laughs> so that we didn't have to learn his hot his takes. Political then, opinions. Yeah. Oh, you I'm imagine sure. the things he would have to say. I will say just to finish this because I do think this is a very tragic, beautiful part of the um, history of the uh, of the Bard's work. 
the story Genozzo, uh, uh, Mariotto and Genozzo, this was adapted by Luigi de Porto as Giulietta e Romeo in 1524. This also drew from Pyramus and Thisbe, all this kind of stuff. Either way, this was actually based on a soldier, or, or the person who wrote this, Luigi, was actually a soldier who went to a warring clan's party during a peace ceremony and fell in love with a woman uh, from the clan Lucina. He later wrote the tale half paralyzed from a battle wound after his clan led an attack on theirs, the one that Lucina belonged to, and dedicated his his uh, his poem to or his story to Lucina. So it is actually weirdly based in reality. And again, they get the names, we get the name Mercutio, all this. Then it's adapted a, a couple different times, and then Shakespeare gets a hold of it. So really dates back hundreds of years before Shakespeare even got to uh, make this thing. And I love that it actually has some is slightly steeped in some reality. But it's a tale as old as time. It is, but of course, Lerman brings it back up to date with the Montagues and Capulets being warring mafia empires in contemporary America with guns in place of swords. Man, I forget how amazing Paul Sorvino is in this Mm. movie. That scene, the scene of him screaming at Juliet as well as his wife, he, I mean, acted his fucking ass off. Everybody did. Just his his presence is so consuming. I just love his face, especially for this character. Everybody did such a great job in this movie. I know. And I love this concoction here that Lerman pulls together. He's pulling together uh, the gangster family drama dynamic of The Godfather, the bizarro reality of Fellini films. If you've ever seen like Fellini's Eight and a Half, this weird like hyper reality and the dark romance adult drama of a Tennessee Williams Southern Belle which I think just perfectly pulls this thing together to make this fascinating whirlwind of just teenage lust. a bunch of hot little boys. A bunch of hot little boys. Well, I'm not going to say a sexy little girl because it makes me sound weird because she was 16. Yeah, we have to talk about that for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And also it should be noted that Lerman was more faithful to the original text than any of the other big R&J adaptations that have happened over the years. Um, Thank you for shortening it because nobody can handle you saying it anymore. <laughs> I'll be saying R&J a lot throughout this. Ugh, R&J. It yeah. sounds like you're... It's like a well, grocery sounds store. Bad. Sounds bad. Like it's like a grocery store you go to. I gotta go to the R&J. Do you want anything? Yes! I want a potion! Um, <laughs> uh, and technically, it's R plus J. R plus J, too. You're right. And technically, technically, it's R cross J. Because <laughs> Baz Luhrmann intended for it to be a cross. Ah, that makes sense, of course. Romeo, a cross betwixt them! Romeo cross Juliet. Speaking of which, uh, that actually sounds like an anime, but either way. No, it's, it was in. It was actually in reference to the idea that they were predestined for each other, mm. and it was um, Boslerman taking William Shakespeare making fun of the idea of predestination because that is, you know, the the idea of the star-crossed lovers is actually means that it was fate that made them have this, whereas that's bullshit. They were. Um, being a little they're bit over dramatic. Yeah, they're yeah. just being <laughs> stupid kids. Just a tinge, just a tinge. Just I'm going to make one, a new one for today's era called Romeo Hashtag Julia. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That actually would work very well. But either way, I want to I want to go back, actually take a step back and talk about Boz Lerman leading up to making this because it is kind of a, a wild, this guy is wild, man. This guy's had such an interesting career. I don't know how, like it's kind of, a, it's kind of miraculous. He was born in Sydney, Australia. His mother was a ballroom dance teacher, so that would make a lot of sense uh, for his first film. And uh, also a um, 
dress shop owner, and his father ran both a petrol station and a movie theater. So, of course, you get all that coming together. You're going to make this director that makes his first film about ballroom dancing. In his all-boys day school, he performed in Shakespeare's Henry IV. Weird. Also, the opening scene, Romeo and Juliet, is at a petrol station. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Well, this is part of that. He even says that about Strictly Ballroom is that um, since Strictly Ballroom is about a young man striving to break the conventions of ballroom dancing, it really was about Boz himself inside of the movie because his dad was also a, um, he was a Navy man who fought in Mm. Vietnam. So he had a very strict upbringing and he said ballroom dancing and commando training was what made up his child. Interesting. What an interesting dynamic. Yeah. And, and then of course he performs in Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth at his all boys day school. In high school he meets a guy named Craig Pierce who he's going to go on to collaborate with on most of his films including Romeo and Juliet. Hmm. I'm going to say uh, he co-wrote every movie except for Australia which is kind of the only movie that wasn't successful for Baz Luhrmann. Why doesn't he get credited? He does, I believe. I mean, but like, why is Boz Lerman the face? He says we most of the time. Okay. I will really? say that he does. He does speak in we, and the we is referring to him and his team. But Maybe a lot the of other times guys he's talking like, about how the 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 last little pig went we 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 all the way home. Yep, he, that's and what so, he's saying. He's always talking about that little pig. <laughs> that little and we're like Boz. We're talking about Shakespeare right now. <laughs> we we we. Okay, Wait. the piggy. Yes, the piggy. Uh, he got the nickname Boz from his father. Because he had a big puff, he had big puffy hair like this English basil brush, a red fox puppet that appeared in British children's television, who had a puffy furry tail. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but he ended up legally changing his name to Basmark, which is the combination of his birth name and his nickname, which of course was is Boz. And also, Natalie, he actually does say the we Lerman frequently refers to is his collaborators, his production designer, Catherine Martin, who also happens yes. to be his partner, screenwriter Craig Pierce, as well as producer, art director, Martin Brown, and editor Jill Bilcock, and choreographer John Cha-Cha O'Connell. As, Ooh, most cha-cha. Pe- as most people know, an editor's only, or a director's only as good as his team, and mm-hmm. he forms his team really early, actually, like when he's putting together his theater company early on, which we're about to get to. Just out of college, he's cast in a film called Winter of Our Dreams, opposite Judy Davis. So he really starts out as an actually a really solid actor to the point he gets right out of school. He's in a film and he, and the film gives him enough money. I mean, this is a big enough film that he's able to open up his own theater company called the Bond Theater Company. Uh, and it, that's when he's, he initially begins collaborating with uh, Nellie Hooper and Gabriel Mason. These are people he's going to continue to work with. Mason was co-composer on Remy and Juliet's soundtrack and Gabriella uh, co-produced it. And it was around this time that he put out a very controversial TV show called Kids of the Cross, which had him going out and living with actual street kids under character playing a, playing a, a teenage character. Um, and in 1983, he took a two-year acting course at the National Institute of Dramatic Art. And while there, he put up a play with fellow students called... Strictly Ballroom, which drew on his own experiences studying ballroom dancing as a child, as well as the life of professional dancer Keith Bain, who was a big Australian ballroom dancer that grew up in in his hometown. So there's a lot of connection there. So this production, a short comedy drama, it is a critical success at his school. They take it to a Czechoslovakian 
Youth Drama Festival, and that's when he brings in Craig Pierce to help flesh it out, make it a, a bigger production. It, it it ends up back in Australia, doing very very well, and uh, at that point too, he's bringing in actor Catherine McClements, who he uses a lot. You already mentioned production designer, I believe Catherine Martin, who he later marries, set dresser Bill Marin, costume designer. I mean, this is when all all Angus uh, Straight, the costume designer, they all end up working very regularly with his films. And again, that's so important. I do think it's interesting that, that many times Baz Luhrmann is asked, how is it working with your wife as well, uh, you know, as well? And how does that work between you two? And they both have separate rooms. And ah. usually they have, um, they'll also live side by side if they're working together on something and never staying in the same room if mm. they are. And I think that explains a lot. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's also get that uh, space. You need that space if you're working that hard. I think that's what Tim Burton and Helena Bonham they Carter have also did. adjacent houses. Well, houses. not anymore. I think they're divorced. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, they had their own houses. Yeah, next, next to each other. They really got that space. Hey mom. First things first. Thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say yes. I need help, and yes, I choose me, and that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org/lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yes. Music exec, uh, there was a music exec named Ted Albert who saw this play, Strictly Ballroom, and wanted to adapt it to film so badly that he goes off and sets up a film company under his like music record company, and he tracks Lerman down to do just that. And on a shoestring budget, the film is made, and... And there's constant doubt about it. There's no desire from distributors. Tragedy struck on the sidelines. There was the sudden death of Ted Albert. One of the actors on the film also died while they were trying to just get it out. And finally, it makes its way to Cannes Film Festival, where it was met with immediate praise and found itself in a bidding war. So, And we see this so much, where it's like, if you could just get over that one hurdle, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you're the hottest thing in town. Now, Boz could, for his next film, pick any film he wanted. And, of course, he ends up landing on Romeo and Juliet. Now, I will say this is where the real hard part starts. Because when he was asked what was the most challenging aspect of making Romeo and Juliet, Baz Luhrmann said, getting it made. (laughs) So this was the point that he said it was very difficult to convince people to convince Fox, because Fox was the one that was going to give them money. Fox approached it, him, and yeah, yes. he told them, and qu- he said, quote, they got very nervous <laughs> when yes. he told them about what he wanted to do. 
And he even said it's hard to believe that a studio made this film at I the agree. level at which it is financed. Made this film, which is essentially experimental in its execution. Yeah. People say Hollywood is in love with Shakespeare. That's not true. Some of the minis are financing Shakespeare, but no major is doing a Shakespeare as far as I can recall. I thought Kenneth Branagh did a terrific job with Much Ado About Nothing, and I particularly liked his Henry V. But the grosses for these films are 20 million domestic. They're tiny. Why do you think majors don't bother? They're not worth the biscuits. (laughs) (laughs) I like like the phrase, eh, you're not worth the biscuits. I need to use that in an actual, like, like friend breakup or something. (laughs) You're not worth the biscuits. Um, To try and quell the fears, he gets Leonardo DiCaprio to fly out to Australia for a run-through of an early script, and uh, DiCaprio even flies himself out, helps to finance it. Oh, uh, I I was watching an interview with Baz Luhrmann saying that he saw Leo in like a paparazzi yes, photo. And totally. was like, I must have the boy. I want someone who looks just like that, <laughs> who can someone act. who can act. And, and then, then people are like, no, this dude can act. He's yeah. actually really talented. And he's like, boy, oing, oing. Because <laughs> he had just done What's Eating Gilbert Grape, so he was up for an Oscar nom at a very young age. And now I've read multiple accounts of this part of it, that essentially Leonardo DiCaprio went out there and they decided to put a workshop on because they were going to record snippets of what they were thinking of doing with a bunch of boys. And so they decided to record that to show the studio execs of kind of what they were looking for. So Leonardo DiCaprio flew out. He went out there with his dad, but also flew out his boys. And he and his boys did this (laughs) workshop where they were just out there being boys. The amount of... The people that worked on this film that were like, man, they had a great time. Yeah. So all of, it's a precursor like, to the pussy posse. All the boys in this, and I'm going to keep calling them boys, even though they were all well over the age of 18, seem to have had quite a time out down there in Mexico while they were making this film. I'll blame them. And that does lead to eventually why everyone's like, oh, but Claire Days is so frosty. It's like, no, it's because she was 17 and she was trying to do a good job while all of them were like hammered and doing drugs all night and going out partying all night. I have a couple funny quotes that kind of paint that picture. Here's one from DiCaprio. First, I thought Lerman was on the pretentious side, but then you start to get to know him and he's exactly what you want a director to be because actors are, you know, completely insecure. They need attention all the time. Uh, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, born in Los Angeles. He was given that name because of his, his mother was looking at a Leonardo da Vinci painting when he first kicked. At the age of two, he went on stage uh, at a performance festival and started dancing. And he got such a positive response from the crowd that he was bitten by the performance bug. He started at a young age doing commercials, and his first big gig was at age 14 in a Matchbox Cars commercial for Mattel. He ended up dropping Wait, out 14? of- That can't 14, be right. I think so, yeah. Wasn't he already on- um? That sitcom by the time he was like 11? growing pains. Yeah. I oh, was he? Oh, I don't know. But oh, either way, he he dropped out of high school. He later earns a GED, and he never read a book since that time. And it, he's auditioned mercilessly. Ugh, these before, pretty people. He auditioned mercilessly before almost quitting acting, which his father persuaded him from. And in the early '90s, he was getting regular one-off TV gigs until he got a starring role in the TV series adaptation of Parenthood. His first film was the direct-to-video Critters Three, which he describes as quote possibly one of the worst films of all time. So I really want to go back and watch yeah, that one. Yeah, me too. And uh, then he ends up getting really getting his career moving when Robert De Niro handpicks him as uh, in 
to play uh, his, I believe, son in the film The Boy's Life. He gets a Golden Globe and an Oscar nom for that for the film. What's eating Gilbert Grape after that? And then the heart, the Basketball Diaries. I feel like was the first time he was put on the map as like a heartthrob. I think it's bit. called This Boy's Life. This Boy's Life. I know the bat. Remember the Basketball Diaries? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Also, Natalie, to answer your question, he was 15 on the Growing Pains. Oh wow! I thought he had started much younger than 14. My bad. Well, speaking of 14, initially a 14-year-old Natalie Portman was initially (sighs) cast across from 21-year-old Leonardo DiCaprio. I was already disturbed knowing Claire Danes was 17 or 16. I will say, again, he was trying to stay true to the text. And I do understand that. And they never really get Romeo's age. He's somewhere between the ages of... 15 to 21, but Leonardo DiCaprio looks very young. And especially in the movie, he looks, uh, maybe I'm just old now, but looking no, at no, him, like he, he looks like a baby. He looks like he's 16 years old. He definitely old. doesn't look like he's 21. But still, Lerman felt in the early footage in, of rehearsals that it looked like he was, quote, molesting her. So. Well, because. <laughs> He was? <laughs> Especially when they did the scenes in the chemistry testing with Ugh. Paul Rudd, because Paul Rudd was 26 Oof. playing Ugh. Harris, so he Yeesh. was 12 years older than Natalie Portman, and it just looked bad. I love that they renamed him to Ted Paris. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very uh, funny. Yeah, that's very funny. Uh, yeah, and I have to just say I'm very glad and thankful that Natalie Portman made it out of her young teen years because they put her in some inappropriate roles at that age. She she definitely was forced to grow up. Definitely. Yeah. I would love to do an episode on like The Professional and some stuff like that. I mean, The Professional is a great movie. Uh, but I do love the Claire Danes. And Claire Danes, and yeah, I think now again, nowadays, I don't think that this would really like fly doing this age difference uh, for this kind of movie. But we see now that Claire Danes is, was really prof- like professional, really mature, yes. and she's fine. And I'm glad. And, uh, and she got to kiss Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and that is actually how she got the role. Ah. Is that she walked in, so they were doing all of these auditions, and it was Leonardo DiCaprio that had he remembered that he had seen her on My So-Called Life, and he was so sick of girls coming in to audition that could barely look him in the eyes because he's Leonardo DiCaprio, mm-hmm. even at a young age, that girls' hearts would just stop. And apparently, Claire Danes came in, and when they were reading the scene, man, she kissed him right on the fucking lips. And that's why he was like, I trust that. That is someone that is willing to take risks and that is not too scared of me to do this process with me. And I think that's really cool. I saw saw a cool interview with her um, talking about how she did that because she was like the sixth or seventh girl he had seen that day. Mm-hmm. And you gotta he make had, a difference. He had gotten really bored with it. He's like, oh, these all these fucking beautiful women just want to like kiss me all the time. Blah, blah, blah. And he was bored. And she was like, I basically got in his face to like shake him up to be like, look at me. We're acting. Come play with me in the scene. And he liked that about her. Uh, DiCaprio said, she was the only girl when we did the audition who came straight in my face to do the lines. She said them, she had them, said them looking at me right in the eye. And some of the other girls did like the affected flower thing. You know, they stroked the face, looked up, tried to do things with their eyelashes. And it was not nearly as truthful as Claire's performance. 
I mean, he is right. Well, this is the thing, and this is, I, I can't remember if we were talking about this on the actual episode or before, but the idea that Juliet is supposed to be the idea of the Virgin Mary, that she mm-hmm. is supposed to be pious and good and unaffected by all of the greed and um, or even vanity. the war that is going on, the vanity, the yeah. violence, she is above all of those things, which is part of the reason why she is dressed so plainly throughout. I mean, even in one scene, she's in a, 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 a t-shirt. white t-shirt. T-shirt and jeans. And so that is what she's supposed to be, but she's supposed to be strong. She's Mm -hmm. not a wilting flower. She is a strong woman, which is why she makes the choice to be with Romeo in the Mm -hmm. first place. Yeah, I mean, she and Claire Danes is just perfect for it. And I think that really, too, as people, they really complement each other because he's L.A. She grew up in Manhattan and uh, went to a professional performing arts school for junior high Early, early actors, uh, really getting serious by the age of 12. She was, uh, her first big gig was the sitcom Dudley, but her big break, of course, came at the age of 15 for a uh, show that we definitely need to cover. Oh at my some God, point we in have to. God, my so-called life. Yes. It's so good. It's so I good. Love. It's so short. But also, I did try, and I do want to let you guys know, I uh, the line that she said when she kissed him in the audition was, Art thou not Romeo and a Montague? And I tried to um, do that to Jeff and immediately kiss him. He's like, stop. You must stop <laughs> pretending to be Juliet. And it Why? didn't work for sexy time. Why? Because he's like, Romeo is a child. <laughs> you can do sexy adult Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Like he didn't die. Claire Dane said, I didn't necessarily study my character, but the odds and ends of the play itself to get past the initial fear of having to play Shakespeare. Juliet's situation is pretty desperate. She has parents who neglect her, and she doesn't really have any friends. The material is so dramatic and extreme. One minute I'm getting married, the next I'm dying. There's no in-between, which is wonderful. It's exhausting. Uh, and you see Hence that the in the screen acting. Yeah. yeah oh I, my God. Just watching some of the behind the scenes from the movie, I as now just want to be like in the movie. I'm just like, this looks so fun. I want to be in these I crazy scenes. Love the sets, man. Ugh, the like whole so gorgeous. that whole closing shot with them on the the at the church and that beautiful floral beautiful. arrangement with the it's so I want that thanks looking. to Catherine Martin his wife who is oh, also yeah. the production designer and, and oh my god the I want that pool and I want the bath the male female or all all genders bathrooms with this the fish tank in yes, the middle yes yes for sure yes. sure uh, but a glory hole in it uh, would be cool, but yeah, way, because but then like, none of this would have happened if there was yeah, a glory hole. Yeah, just, 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 just came. Yeah, he just, just would have yeah. came and then went uh, and bought his. And you'd be like, oh, I'm so <laughs> fucked up on ecstasy right now. Sorry about that, bra. I'm like, well, he's he, yeah, bra. so he probably wouldn't have come, but he would have had fun while don't he did me, it. Don't call me bra, okay? Just uh, call me bra. <laughs> Either way, let's meet the rest of our cast. We'll, we, there's too many to name. We'll, we'll make it as brief as we can, but it, we should, should mention, especially you You mentioned um, the the parents just acting their entire asses off. Our Montagues include Brian Dennehy as Ted Montague, a former military yeah. man. Dennehy had no formal training. Instead, he would just go to the theater and just watch as many plays as he could while working blue-collar jobs in Manhattan because he's such a badass. He got his first big role as the evil sheriff in Ram Bo's first blood, which uh, led to a prolific career. As the father of Tommy from uh, Tommy Boy. Yes, <laughs> he amazing. Was, 
He was very impressed with Leonardo DiCaprio on the set. And he, he talked about him. He said he was just a kid, 17 or 18 years old. He was 21, but that's okay, Brian Denny. But he was a huge star. And I tell you, I never saw anybody, especially somebody that age, as relaxed as he was and has been since. Now, of course, with that talent and the way he looked, he had damn good reason to be relaxed. And I think that's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Also, there's Romeo's mother, played by Christina Pickles, who Lexi needed to definitely point out immediately that she played Monica's mother on Friends. Yes, she did. Uh, not only do uh, oh uh, yeah, and not only do we get Paul Rudd as Dave Paris, but Juliet's husband to be is also Jamie Kennedy as one of Romeo's cousins in House Montague, which is just such Very a fun. casting of its Paul time. Paul Rudd, you know, of course, it had done Clueless by this He's point, but um, I never really noticed until this watch how funny he does. Very he funny. does these. Little funny comedic things that are the very dancing subtle. Scene. Oh my god, was amazing! The- just the way he looks when they're doing the fireworks, and the way he yeah. just looks yeah. back at her, like to be like, "It's pretty Look cool." At it. <laughs> so funny, like it really is. You know, I wish I could have gone to Juliet and been like, "Listen, as these I'll two mature, <laughs> Paul Rudd's going to be the better choice." Out of the two <laughs> yeah, of them, I'll take him. God, he looks great. Um, our Capulets start with Paul Sorvino as Juliet's father. Sorvino started out on Broadway and might be most known for his role in the film Goodfellas. And his Can daughter- I please, I have mm-hmm. to just read, I have to read this because this has nothing to do with Romeo and Juliet. But I was reading an interview of Paul Sorvino and I love Paul Sorvino and this makes me love him even more. And this is about Goodfellas. And you know in Goodfellas when he's slicing the garlic with the razor blade in prison? Yes. Yes. And so in this interview- He said, let's get the important question out of the way first because it comes from my wife. Was that really you slicing the garlic so fine in Goodfellas? And Paul Sorvino said, that's an interesting question. A lot of people ask me that. But I'm curious why she thinks it couldn't have been me. Tell her. And then he puts his hand on his uh, on the interviewer's hand. Tell her that I'm also a sculptor and a pianist. I also play the guitar. My hands are very well educated. <laughs> and um, he said that as a 70-year-old. And I love Paul Sorvino. That's fun. So I would, and I was like, am that I in love amazing. with Paul Sorvino? Um, the answer is yes. I think that I am. Uh, he's great. I actually thought you were going to read a different quote when he found out that Mir- Mira Sorvino, his daughter, had uh, been uh, essentially like, uh, ab- I forget what it was, harassed at the very least by uh, Harvey Weinstein. He was literally like, Blacklisted he's lucky he's going to jail because I'll kill him. I'll fucking kill that guy. Like he, I, I, I meant to write it down, but I was like, ah, maybe we don't need to get into it. But it's like an amazing quote because he's literally just like, he's lucky. I'll fucking kill that guy. And you're just like, whoa. I, I that makes me love <laughs> so him even awesome. further. Okay, great. All right, so I'm awesome. in love with Paul Sorvino. I'm glad that we finally, finally figured it's that like out. It's like amazing. It is interesting though, watching this as an older person that, um. I that I was way more in love with Paul Sorvino and Paul Rudd and really recognized how deeply I'm in love with John Leguizamo. Yes. Oh, man, he is so sexy in this movie. Holy uh, shit. Uh, of course, as Tybalt uh, started out in New York City as a stand-up comic in the mid-'80s, and his first big gig was as Luigi in the cinema all-star classic <laughs> Super Mario which Brothers. Which is horrible, and which, I love though, it. It's, it's so, so great. Bad. It's so great because of how terrible it is. Yeah, but, and weirdly, that kind of got him his start in Hollywood and what led to him getting Romeo and Juliet. But And he, he did you know, say... 
that Boslerman made us rehearse. He said about a month of intense rehearsals. Auditions were really brutal. It was between me and Benicio del Toro for Tybalt, and luckily he mumbles. So I got it. And that was incredible. Thank you, Benicio. And Boz is just... He's galvanizing. He makes you feel like you're so integral to the story and your collaboration is so vital. And that taught me so much. In fact, to the point that Tybalt's swordmanship is referred to as being showy in the actual Mm -hmm. uh, Romeo and Juliet written by William Shakespeare. Um, So John Leguizamo worked with a choreographer to make Tybalt's fighting style flamenco style. And that's why he does all of the flourishes because he worked with a choreographer to turn his fighting into dance. He gets down in his knees and he opens his shirt up and with the, when he's about to like. Oh my God, when he, (gasps) oh, that opening, like when he's smoking the cigarette and he Mm. puts it out with those fucking boots and Mm -hmm. he stomps the cigarette. I was like, mamma mia. (laughs) Okay, I have some. (laughs) Uh, Miriam Margolius plays Juliet's nurse, known for her unique voice. She got a lot of VO work early on, including all of the supporting female characters in the dub of the Japanese TV show series, Monkey. And in the late 70s, she appeared regularly in Rowan Atkinson's Black Adder. You may know her best as Professor Sprout in the Uh, Harry Potter films. But whatever is canceled. To round it out, no, we should... No, Harry Potter. Yes, it's over. You can't go to the Harry Potter land anymore. It's over. You can't give her your wand <laughs> yeah, back. And no. you have to give your wand back. And you have to give your wand back. Oh. Uh, but either way, to round it out... <laughs> Why did you do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> to round it out, we should definitely mention Pete Postlewaite uh, as Father Lawrence. Oh, and, yeah. He's uh, great. So good. He won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for In the Name of the Father, um, it should be noted Marlon Brando was up for the role but turned it down due to personal family issues. Uh, and of course, lastly, the incredible incredible Damn. performance by Mercutio, by uh, Harold Perrineau. He was cast in the original stage adaptation of the 1980 film Fame in 1986 and may best be known for his roles as Link in the Matrix series and on Lost as Michael Dawson. But it makes and sense great. that he would be a musical theater trained because yes. his yes. movement oh my is God. so incredible. That choreography, he's, he, he crushes that scene on the staircase. Ugh. And I think, Holden, you were kind of touching on this, um, I, and I hope you don't mind me saying it because it's nothing against Please. you, but... Uh, oh my God, what is this? It was it was <laughs> a hard thing at the time whenever they did this sort of him, him in drag. It's oh. such a powerful, yeah. sexy, I, awesome thing, but in the 90s... That was not a thing that really happened. And so it really deterred like boys, I think, from ever being they, they didn't you weren't allowed to think that was OK. Yeah, I mentioned 90s. I mentioned in Ali uh, before we were t- recording just to give this uh, some basis that I was a little I think I remember being a little alienated by the drag performance a little bit, but also it was like my first taste of it and, and helped mm-hmm. normalize it. Yeah, I for think, sure. At the end of the day. But it is funny how how that it was, was actually such a bro- just surprising how that was like crazy at the time well, yeah and, i mean the 90s were full bro culture it yes. was like the worst fucking era i seen in but, like everything else in the movie like all the, the gangs of boys and the gunplay and the macho-ness so that's why mercutio just adds this incredible it's queerness just, yeah it's to just so sexy thing. too oh my god yeah he just kills oh, it oh yeah. so good And before we get into the filming, I do want to talk about some of the adaptations to the script that they did while working on this. Um, For instance, there are no accents in this, that there's no English accents, there's no Italian accents. In fact, the idea of the, the mafioso side of things, I feel, is 
And the idea that like the nurse is shown as a Hispanic woman and and that the John Leguizamo brings in this Hispanic culture as well. And yet none of it is nailed down to anything. And that was done on purpose. Lerman explains that this is because he considers the American language as better attuned to Shakespearean texts. He says when Shakespeare wrote these plays, they were written for an accent that was much more like an American sound. And when you do Shakespeare with an American accent, it makes the language very strong, very alive, because it's only the father that actually speaks an iambic pentameter. Because although you usually think that like, oh, Shakespeare's written in iambic pentameter, it is, but that is actually the way that you pronounce the lines, not in the way that it is written. So it is written and is given to you as a little gift that like, we would like you to speak like this, because really what it is, it's it is a line of verse with five metrical feet, each consisting of one short or unstressed syllable, followed by one long or stressed syllable. And that is what the idea of iambic pentameter is. Yes. So, and Father Lawrence is the only one that still uses it in the movie, as well as the fact that Fox was pretty pissed that he wouldn't change the language. Fox wanted the film to feature modern English. And Fox took a while before they began. They wanted it to be in all raps. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and he wanted it to be completely sung, and um, which I also would have watched. The studio initially wanted the film to keep the story, but refrained from sticking to the original text in favor of something more modern and accessible. But as we even talked about at the beginning of, talk about making it work. Again, there is not one line in that that you don't understand the intention of it. And yes. that is what makes that's what draws you in. That is part of the reason why. And I'll get to this with the soundtrack that Shakespeare wrote his plays to be heard and not to be seen. That is why they are constantly, that's why that there is a narrator. That is why that there is the chorus. It is because it is their, their it's their job to maintain what you see inside of your mindscape that is happening on the stage. Oh, my mindscape is, saw a lot of stuff. <laughs> oh, my mindscape saw stuff, which is also why, and I didn't realize it until this watching, he uses um, media, the television, the, the, the news mm -hmm. coverage, the papers, that he uses that to convey things that are happening in the story that are not happening in front of the characters, which is brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it's I also another I the, level. I yeah. love the shots from the helicopter news reporting. Yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. It's so good. And uh, yeah, it definitely, it definitely works uh, so well for it. Also, what's funny to me about that is like, Fox saying don't use Shakespeare's language then he's actually just doing an adaptation of Romeo e Julieta, the like Italian story that like it wouldn't even be it the wouldn't even matter. Yeah, no, it, does, it doesn't. That then it doesn't matter. Then it's but actually not even say, based on. It's not even. I mean, an, that's just, West, Julia, it's just West Side Story. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. It's a West Side Story. But there well is something else. that Boz, if you're listening, and I know you are. That mm -hmm. you fucked me on because there is one thing that he changed. And I remember because I didn't read the end of Romeo and Juliet when I was in high school and I watched the movie and that the end was changed because they did it for Hollywood in the play. They die. They die. She wakes up. Oh, my God. She dies. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. But in the movie, 
they see each other and they yeah. have their last yeah, kiss yeah, yeah, goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And that was done for Hollywood yes. reasons. And that doesn't happen in the no. play. And I remember that like like it was something about like, did they get a proper goodbye? I'm like, yeah, 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 they kissed. I mean, it sucks, but they kissed. It didn't happen in the fucking play. <laughs> no, but it, as a, a tween watching it, you're just like, oh my oh, god! It makes it sad. It makes it sadder. Honestly. Yes, no. it makes it sadder because they're sharing this kiss, yeah. knowing what's happening, knowing and, what's and happening. It's so tra- and she sees the tragic. poison. Yeah, and it's like milliseconds. She's like reaching up to him as he's starting to take it, and you're just like, come on, Juliet, you can do it. <laughs> Even though you know they die, you're Lexi just like, was oh, maybe, so they, mad. maybe they won't die. Lexi was just like, I. Fucking, this makes me so mad. She was like crying. Was but again, Juliet's lucky because at some point she would have been like, "What? I thought thee loved thou, and yet this is a pussy posse." Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> Ten years on, Romeo and Juliet. Say English pussy posse. <laughs> Juliet's got five kids. Romeo's, you know, yeah, she exactly. Should've, she should have stuck with pair club. with Ted Paris. Honestly, probably would have been a better match. Either way. Um, Getting into the filming, most all of the pre-production was done in Australia. The film was actually shot, as we mentioned earlier, mainly in Mexico. There's a little bit done in Miami. The Capulet Mansion was the set of a Chapultepec Castle in Mexico City's Chapultepec Park, which is absolutely so beautiful. beautiful. It's on this big peak. Oh. Uh, are on the top of this like big mountain, and uh, but the ballroom was actually built on a soundstage in is uh, in another part of Mexico City. The church is the Immaculate Heart of Mary in uh, Del Valle Del Valle neighbor in the Del Valle neighborhood of Mexico City as well. Um, this all right. So if you want a time capsule of not just the '90s, but or not just this film, but also just the '90s as a whole. Uh, read this EW article. It's so good. It's just like a person on the set of Romeo and Juliet. And I have a couple quotes, and this is one of them. DiCaprio, who seems in a perpetual hyperkinetic frenzy, and Danes, who maintains an apparently unshakable state, uh, a state of serenity, have become unlikely friends. When they finally step into the elevator, his hair and makeup are fussed with so much it tests even Danes' patience, and her unoccupied hands start to roam. Uh-oh, she says, looking up with a hint of a smile. I just broke off a piece of the set. The elevator's up button is reattached. Lerman instructs the pair to fly at each other with passion, and the stars obey coming together with such force that they crack heads and begin to giggle. The next take is better, but there seem, there seem to be ten more, and then ten more. DiCaprio rolls his eyes and yawns. Come on, D, show me a kiss, Lerman encourages his Romeo, who is busy thumb-wrestling with his co-star. They kiss some more. One more, yells the director. Apparently, Lerman liked to do a ton of takes. He's one of those directors. Man, I recommend going and finding the video of the behind-the-scenes of the way they shot the, el- um, the elevator scene, because that's, you know, their first big kiss is in this beautifully lit elevator it was completely a fake elevator, and the walls all pull up because they they wanted to get that, that round awesome shot, three sixty yeah. shot, yeah. And they the only way they could think to do it was to make the the walls these things that you pull up almost like uh, domino pieces, and they they as the camera goes around, they flip them up and slam them back. It's really insane. It's hard to describe even, but they're they're kissing in the middle of this like chaotic scene all around them with these like these crewmen just going like slam slam and they're just like make it out in the middle of it and it's really cool you should go watch it hell yeah hi max i wanted to share something with you i wanted to tell you how grateful i am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one i'm grateful for how you changed your life i'm grateful for the love you have for me 
I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, and uh, so they actually did have a gun handler named Charlie Taylor that created the guns as well. And in the those e- guns are cool as hell, those man. Those fucking guns are so cool. And I love how badass even Claire Danes, even Juliet's gun is like so rad. It's like this white. Uh, do- I forget the exact model, but it's like so I just cool. love that they put all the names of the yes. swords on the guns. Yeah. Yes. And I did want to speak to um, Harold Perrineau, who played Mercutio, and I was talking about this earlier, about how all it was a bit of a boy's hen cluck of a buck out there on the streets of Mexico when they were asked, did you guys all become friends? He said, yeah, we all became quite close friends. We were in Mexico, and we kind of only had each other. None of us really spoke the language. They were a little younger than me, so they were having a real wild time. But I liked hanging out with them. At the time, we were hanging out with David Blaine as well. Uh, And he taught me a bunch of magic tricks that didn't make it into the film. But we used it for the Queen mob scene. Oh, that's crazy. David Blaine showed him that. David Blaine. So we were just having a wild, crazy time in Mexico. This really was the, this is when the pussy posse was formed. Yes, Yes. and that's, but also why I think when he said, he's like, I think a lot of that wild energy was captured in the movie. And yes, it was. Because they were just all on blow the whole time. I mean, it works. It works for the movie. Speaking of wild energy, apparently during production, the hairstylist, Aldo Signoretti, who we'll get to later, was kidnapped. Uh, But apparently it was, quote, a bargain to get him back, according to the production, though he did break his leg in the process as they were tossing him out of the car in exchange for... Apparently, it goes back and forth. I read 300 USD, but um, apparently it was maybe more like 3,000 USD still. I've read both. I think that it is it is still up in the air. But either way, Lerman did say that it was a bit of a steal. And then <laughs> uh, they, they Wait, had to but st- like, did they just snatch him off the street? Yeah, I guess they just grabbed they him. They took him. Yeah. And then they called up and they said, we want $3,000 to get the money back. And so Lerman sent down um, a guy working on it. His name was Mauricio. So he says, so Mauricio, who's about this high, goes down clutching the money outside the hotel and he holds up the money and he chucks them the bag at them and then they threw the hairdresser out of the car and that's how he broke his leg. You know what? I get it. You know this big fancy Hollywood set comes down there? They just wanted some money. They got it. (laughs) Yeah. He seems fine. So uh, I guess he broke his leg. That's probably not good. Yeah, another, yeah, it's not fun. But. Another wild energy was that uh, apparently during that, that amazing wide shot after Mercutio's death that is incredible mm. looking, that, that crazy storm was an actual hurricane and it did destroy all of the sets on the beach. And uh, there really was this frenetic energy yes. to the whole yeah. thing. And that is why they actually, during the hurricane that hit into Mexico while they were filming, Boslerman sent people out 
with cameras. He said, get out there because we don't have the money to get the storm CGI's done properly. So they needed to use all of... So half of that, the CGI for the storm was just the actual storm itself. And for all them Shakespeare nerds out there, there were a ton of references to other Shakespeare plays. Of course, I love that the FedEx for there is called Post Haste. So funny. Uh, it's so tongue-in-cheek. There's yeah. also the uh, Add More Fuel to Your Fire, which is uh, seen at the gas stations uh, as its tagline. That's a reference to King Henry VI Part Three. Another example is the Capulet Corporation tagline, which is experience is by industry achieved, which is from the two gentlemen of Verona. But I do love that it's not just like trying to get like whatever teenagers into Shakespeare. There's a lot of little Easter eggs for that Shakespeare nerd in the audience. Absolutely. And also again, adding the layers like all of the water imagery that was involved that he really took and ran with in this movie. When he was asked, what are the ideas behind using water? Because you you remember, he's always by the beach. The fish tank. They they take the, the, the balcony scene, they put it into the pool. So Lerman says, in truth with Romeo and Juliet, I've dealt with their world as if their parents are like a Busby Berkeley musical on acid. And it's coming at them all the time and it won't shut up. When you get to Paul Servino in a dress, you just think, please, no more. Next thing, (laughs) Romeo's underwater. Click. Silence. It's not a big symbolic thing, but Romeo and Juliet escape into water. They use water for silence and peace that is theirs. This is there's a place for us moments. That final image when they kiss underwater, it's just silence. It comes from a personal experience of mine. My father used to talk a lot and we'd be in the pool and I'd just go underwater and hide from him. It was always so peaceful. That's where it comes from. It's a theatrical device. Everything is about telling the story. And I have I've fallen more in love with this movie. The more research I did on it, I'm like, man, y'all killed this. And I think it backfired watching this because I was so excited. But now afterwards, all I want to do is go to a sweaty costume party with a thousand people. Yeah. I don't know. And, and do a can't. bunch of drugs and fall in yeah. love through a fish tank. Yeah. Kind of. I, I love my husband, though. I love my <laughs> yeah, husband. Yeah, we all love our partners. <laughs> but still, you can fall in love when you're on ecstasy from far away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, also, Catherine Martin, the set designer we mentioned before, uh, very similar to Lerman's approach, she wanted to show off a Verona that she felt was uh, ha- that was what Shakespeare had in mind. She said it was his vision as an Englishman of this mythical Italianate country where uh, everyone was passionate and hot-blooded. Essentially, the Verona in which Shakespeare set his play was create a created world itself, like a heightened version of Italy, a heightened version of... Created uh, world, yes, yeah. is something that I can't see. It's the way a teenager seeing. sees it. It's the way a teenager sees yes. the world. Everything's insane. Like, if if your parents raise their voice at you, it's like a monster, like, like screaming at you. If, if any little thing happens, it's massive for mm-hmm. you. It's a yeah. kind of thing that I think about all the time. It's the same reason why there's that, you know, your toddler goes through their terrible twos. It's because all of these hormones are changing very quickly in your body and you don't know how to handle it. Yes. So that is why you there's actually scientific evidence that it is things that like, I just can't handle it. I can't handle it and because it's just so much going through your body at yes. once. 
Yeah. And, and What's it, my excuse? <laughs> well, Hopefully you know, we just got a lot of hormones. I got but a lot of feelings. Yeah. Either way, it's time to get into it, ladies. The costume design, the hair and makeup. Uh, there's a, there's so much going on here. The the costume designer was Kim Barrett, and for and for any Boz Lerman film, the costumes come, of course, front and center as a way to be both eye catching and character defining and telling the story. That is another thing. Every little bit of what he did with this movie is telling the story. I gotta say, though, I'm glad that he takes notes, and I think that's what makes him a good director, because um, I saw an interview where Leonardo DiCaprio was saying that Boz Lerman first brought him the idea that a lot of the characters would be on rollerblades. <laughs> yes. Leonardo DiCaprio said, maybe let's not, let's try something different than that. And I'm so thankful well, that, that he did it. Is what is cool, again, Boz Lerman, apparently, he's very big on and incorporating even the actor's ideas or at least down to talk about it and discuss, which I feel that a lot of great directors that we research don't always do that yeah, because it is kind of their vision, which I also understand that thought process behind it. But I like that Baz Luhrmann goes towards these projects that are done by a community. For sure. And I think, yeah, he, he, knows how to, to work as a community and make that vision something that you, you delegate things that, you know, maybe you don't know as much like costumes and, and, and set design to somebody who's really good. And that's what a good director does. Totally, oh my totally. God. And definitely the, the costume designer for this, um, her name is Kim Barrett and yes. she was a superstar. They mm. did such an amazing job mm-hmm. because how, to how do you create a link between two households while still maintaining their distinct identities? The answer is fashion. <laughs> so the older members of both houses sport a more classic 60s, 60s, 70s fascist, 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 fascist. Look. <laughs> 60s, 70s fashion look. But the younger members diverge on this with the Capulet's dressing and super tailored looks by Dolce & Gabbana and, uh, that are refined but with a lot of accessories including their flashy gun holsters. Uh, also, I will just go ahead and say that it is, it is um, the squirrel nut zippers versus uh, No Doubt. Is what I, I would say. Squirrel well, nut zippers. Yes. Jesus well, Christ. And thinking of just the idea that no matter what, usually youths want to rebel against their family. And what is a very easy way to do that? Dress differently. And yeah. even down to the fact that the parents were all wearing um, Yves Saint Laurent and the the different houses had different designers. So, uh, you know, the, the Capulet clique led by John Leguizamo and as Tybalt, they were sleek, sexy, and super tailored looks, and they all wore Dolce & Gabbana. And the Capulets favor mostly black garments with streamlined silhouettes, but drip in decorative embellishment. They've adapted their gun holsters as high fashion accessories and wear their shirts tucked in to show off their bold belt buckles. One of them even has a grill with sin etched into it. Mm-hmm. Barrett said, with the Montague boys, it's sort of a Vietnam feeling when the soldiers wore Hawaiian shirts and shorts and indig- indigenous hats. I, they they invented like their own way. to me. They, they, right? That's what I got from they it. They invented their own way of wearing clothes to suit the climate and the surroundings. And yeah, they're supposed to and look more laid back. Yeah. And because yeah. because soldiers came back from Vietnam, 
piss the fuck off and an easy way of rebelling against the people that sent them into a war that they should not have been a part of was wearing cargo shorts and wearing fucking Hawaiian shirts. But even these ones were high designer Hawaiian shirts yeah, and they cargo look fucking shorts. Fly. And the yeah. and the dope hair colors and all that kind of stuff as well. A little yes. bit more punk rock as well mm-hmm. with that kind of stuff. So and for the two young lovers, they are intentionally divergent from their own family's looks and in very simple clothes with clean lines for which she used Prada. It's very specifically for the two of them to let them be distinct, but also simple, also pure in this yeah, way. Yeah, Leo never has those sort of brash costumes on, even in that first scene. I he's think in, he's in got the, that leisure suit yeah. shirt, which I don't love, but it's like, <laughs> a you know, a classic suit look. He kind of has like a Hawaiian shirt in the exile scene. Yeah. I think that's like the only time he he's dressed it like more similar to Ugh, them, but God. yeah. That, I'm sorry. I know this is just me being fucking s- sexual this entire time, but man, <laughs> him in that trail on front of that trailer smoking a cigarette uh, yeah. was like the exact moment I became a woman, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I get it. All right. The, the lead uh, on hairstyling was done by Aldo Signoretti, who was kidnapped, and we mentioned before, has a prolific career, and most notably did the original Suspiria. Of course, that fantastic horror Oh, that's film. rad. Yeah, Holy yeah. shit. He did that. I didn't know that. He also did that crazy-ass Popeye movie that's completely insane <laughs> uh, and has a I lot of crazy hair stuff. I want to rewatch that and I see re-watch if it, it is too. any good. I want to rewatch it, too. Just and for it, Shelley Duvall, come on. Oh, she's so good. And uh, and went on to do big movies like Troy and Lerman's Moulin Rouge, which, again, has so many crazy looks. Makeup was provided by Maurizio Silvi, another frequent collaborator on Lerman Films. And really- also the man that had to go deal with the cartel that stole <laughs> the hairdresser. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, so let's talk about this undeniable soundtrack, which I feel like pulls the whole thing together and, and turns this into an absolute teenager classic. It is nuts. It is so it really, good. And it makes so much sense that that this is the year that, quote, Alt-Rock died and the Spice Girls were born. (laughs) That the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack represented a shift in thinking away from the heroin-addled authenticity of grunge and toward the ecstasy-fueled celebration of artificiality that would encase the remainder of the decade like a goldfish in a pair of clear acrylic platform shoes. That is such an amazing line to describe (laughs) the sound design of this movie. I love that. I love that, and I agree. But I still love that they kept... There's still like ever clear and butthole surfers and stuff. Yes. Well, it's the, it's so the garbage. That's yeah, why it's, it's the, the evolution. It's the, of it. It, yeah, it's the connection of those two and garbage and yeah, yeah, it's garbage fantastic. and. It goes on to say, in the film, director Boz Lerman expresses this change in dazzling quick cuts and garish visuals alongside angst-ridden monologuing from the young leads. Sonically, that juxtaposition plays out in a mixture of bands riding the alt-rock wave back to the shore and glossy pop and disco, all underlaid with a trip-top beat. And so much of this music was made for the movie itself because Boz Lerman really wanted to create, again, it's a whole world that he's creating here. He didn't want just music that everyone had heard before. He wanted specific m- songs for specific scenes, down to the point that even what you usually would do with a composer, he was doing just with the bands by sending them the either sending them lines to write for inspiration off of Shakespeare's work 
or would actually send them dailies to to compose their music around. But he was doing this with like Radiohead. Oh yeah, my God. That's, yeah. the best. that's the best Ugh. example. Radiohead, uh, he hit them up to compose the exit music for Romeo and Juliet. I never put two and two together that that is why the song is called Exit Music for a Film. For a which Film. Which is and actually this. not on the film soundtrack, but it is and instead showed up on their now classic album, OK Computer. Yeah, and their lyrics are like, you they basically tell the story man and that's like one of the best albums i think of all time okay yeah. computer you uh, know? absolutely and oh yeah perfect way to end a movie and it was written for romeo and juliet uh but of course um york decided it was too good for just the <laughs> yeah. soundtrack which is why he wrote it for the film allowed them to use it and then wouldn't allow them to put it on the soundtrack and instead he wrote another song or the Instead, both the soundtrack and the film got talk show host, which was a B-side from the Street Spirit fade-out mm. single, mm. whose spare opening guitar line became the entrance music for DiCaprio's Romeo. And it, I mean, I love it. It's I great. love it. It's great. I just love that, too, where he, where Boslar was like, hey, can you write a great song for this movie? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And he's like, nah, actually, it's too good. I'm going to keep it. Which is, I, made I love such Radio a great Head, song. Oh, yeah. No, of course. The soundtrack was composed by Craig Armstrong, who studied at the Royal Academy of Music and sees no difference in credibility between popular and classical forms, which makes him such a good fit for Romeo and Juliet, because that's what Lerman did with Romeo and Juliet, brought, kind of brought it up to date in this way. And it was very evident when he collaborated with the band Massive Attack on their album Protection, while also being commissioned by the Royal Shakespeare Company to write music for their productions in the late 90s, including The Tempest. However, Romeo and Juliet was one of the first movie scores for for Craig Armstrong, and certainly the biggest one, and the one that put him on the map in Hollywood. And what, again, what Baz Luhrmann did here is not against what William Shakespeare himself, what his intention was with the play. Lerman explains in an interview on the music edition of Romeo and Juliet that Shakespeare used all varieties of music to reach the highly varied audience in the Globe Theater. Church music, folk music, and popular music of the time. Lerman echoes this in his version of the drama. So Lerman was asked, how did you approach finding a modern style appropriate for this classic work? And his answer was, well, I guess the question is appropriate. Everything we did was about being inspired by Shakespeare. So, for example, the use of pop songs. Shakespeare used pop songs in his productions. He would just stick the popular song of the day into the middle of the show, you know, to advance the story, but also to engage people through song. We followed the idea that Shakespeare was really a pop storyteller, that he was absolutely not pressured. So appropriate sort of went out the door for us, because if you're guided by what a bunch of academics tell you is appropriate, or by some critic whose favorite production was the John Gelgood from 1936, then all you're doing is being guided by an old-fashioned ninny. So the appropriate manner... (laughs) The appropriate thing to do was to go into really intense research and as much as possible address the material in a way in which the author addressed it and also in the environment in which Shakespeare wrote. Uh, also, shout-outs to Nellie Hooper, uh, who we mentioned previously, and Marius DeVries, who collaborated on the soundtrack selection. And I believe may have helped out with the co- composition as well. It was a little unclear to me. But either Damn. way, I mean, what a classic. I mean, and, and the Cardigans as well, by the way. Big shout-out to that song. That was, love uh, them, love yeah, that, that video, too, had my had my early loins. Oh, thumping. yeah. It I was just love- in every middle school, high school dance. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 
Nell Hooper was approached by Boslerman to work uh, on Romeo and Juliet after he worked on Bjork's Venus as a boy. Mm. And he also worked closely with uh, someone named Justin Warfield, who's in the band One Inch Punch, who was on the yeah. album. And they were really good friends in London. And he said, we were going out to clubs and then back to his for an after party. The songs that ended up on the soundtrack were being beta tested in the living room at 5 a.m. When I saw the movie, I was like, this is the sound of that summer in London. Mm. So what I love, too, is that he would hear music while he'd be out and then put them together and be like, OK, we're hammered. Let's listen to this. How do you feel about it? What does it make you feel? And isn't that an awesome way to create yes. a soundtrack for a movie? I think 100%. it's the, the exact correct way to do it. And Desiree 100%. also wrote the song um, Kissing You for the movie as well. And she said, I was terrified when Boz asked me to write the love theme. But people tell me all the time that they walked up the aisle to it. I mean, that you told me that earlier and I never thought about it, but it, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Right? And now we also need to talk about the very... Very talented Quindon Tarver, who was the head choir boy in the choir's version that was singing in the movie. I loved when asked about how Boslerman got Prince's permission to use When Doves Cry mm. is that he said, I just went in to have a cup of tea with him. By the next morning, we had the rights. <laughs> I don't oh, know okay. what that means right. or <laughs> what happened, but I guess Prince enjoyed him. Or, yeah, either uh, who knows what? I don't know what happened, but um, Prince did give the blessing for him to use the song. I think the challenge is getting into the cup of tea. Yeah, the cup Prince. of tea part is the get issue. the cup of tea. I bet Lerman's fashion probably helps or his kind of bravado. I bet I they bet. have a lot in common actually in terms of their actually. John Leguizamo kind of looks like he's wearing a Prince outfit. Yeah, in the beginning. Totally. Oh <laughs> yes. <laughs> And what's so interesting is that they made a big mistake of with the choir boys uh, on set, they didn't record them singing any of the music. So by the time that they came back around because they were going to put the choir songs on the second release of the soundtrack, because the first one was so insane. They even went on tour through Australia wow. with the bands that were on the soundtrack performing the soundtrack. It was a huge, crazy hit. But since they didn't, record the choir boys they came back three years later but the boys had all grown up they're like and three years had passed and they couldn't they couldn't sing the song for the soundtrack and that sucks (laughs) that does suck yeah uh but a phenomenal phenomenal performance by that choir it's really really good uh but either way the film released on november 1st 1996 and was number one its opening weekend and was panned by critics like Roger Ebert, which is exactly as it should be, thus resuscitating the works of Shakespeare for a whole new generation of horny teenagers. Congratulations, yeah. Boz. Yeah, good job, Ebert, making it, yeah, panning it, because that's ex- you're right. It's exactly, it's exactly how My it theater be. teacher needed to hate it. Like, yeah. it yes. had to be that way for us to love it. You know what I mean? Like that that is that is the 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 gut stab, you guys just the bloodletting. You understand it. Right. You or, don't get it. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, all the snootiness just completely out the window. Uh, I have a couple of final quotes. Jackie, do you have any other uh, little bits? Uh, any anything else before we wrap this thing up? No, but I guess I have another little final quote. Okay, well you can say it whenever. How about I do this Boz one uh, first, and then you can do yours, and then I'll finish sure. up with this hilarious uh, final excerpt from the EW article. Buzzerman said. 
Classic text is to me that which survives time and geography, the idea of which and the execution of which transcends and moves through country and time. Shakespeare does. There were other writers than when Shakespeare wrote who were considered great artists. People wrote Shakespeare off at the time as an uneducated popularist. Yet, a hundred years later, they started taking his work seriously. What's terrible is it has become more and more about being in an exclusive club. In fact, it began as the most popular art form you can imagine. It's just about reclaiming Shakespeare for the popular audience for which it was written. For everybody. His audience was everybody from the street sweeper to the Queen of England. He was an absolutely relentless entertainer. If you look at the plays, there would be a joke, a song, violence, tragedy, all in one package. There was no such thing as a consistent style. It was about entertaining, communicating, and revealing a story. People say it's an MTV interpretation, but I didn't take any cues from MTV. We meticulously researched the Elizabethan stage, and every choice we made came from there. Stand-up comedy next to a music piece. Shakespeare used popular song. We used popular song. It was simply about grabbing the attention of the audience and making it available to everybody. I am shocked that it's the number one film in America this weekend. Everyone is running around saying, how did that happen? Not in the history of cinema has Shakespeare been number one at the box office. Well, he's a hell of a good storyteller. I can't imagine he'd be too disappointed about selling a few tickets. If if anything, I would say that MTV took its cues from this movie. Yeah, if anything, I think they, they... incorporated because I said it looked a lot like Cribs but Cribs didn't come out till well after this movie and a lot of that stylized uh, camera movement really did does feel quite similar mm-hmm. and I did want to include this quote about love because it does seem like it could be created by someone that was very cynical about the idea of love but when asked if love is not possible Lerman replied I believe in love Sounds like a song, but I do. All my works have essentially been about some degree of love. It may be a word, but in truth, it's a profound emotion that is, in your body and your veins, chemical. Do I believe in the extraordinary, passionate, mad things people will do for love? Yes. Is young love a lethal and dangerous drug in a world of learned hate? where you're being told to hate someone because of their name or skin color, then you're going to have a tragedy. Do I believe in that primary myth? Absolutely I do. Am I telling it in an offhanded way to disarm people? Yes. But do I ultimately hope that you are moved by that tragedy? Yes. (laughs) Yes! Yes, I meant! I was moved in my pants. And I, um, yeah. I, I also would like to, <laughs> I'd like to apologize uh, post-script for making this all about my lust, but I, it was really fun and I'm glad you guys did this. And I just was wondering if you guys, either of you had a, like a, a specific sexual awakening movie. Uh, so many, so oh. many of them. It was all horny for me. All I did was watch horny. <laughs> I would love if you guys would f- like think about maybe the the one that it was because I think we should. Yeah, I think yeah. we should do episodes on it. I, uh, uh, definitely the striptease in True Lies. That was your awakening. Ooh, that was one of them. I mean, True Lies is a, a totally good movie. That we was a, totally... that's a great movie, and that striptease was like, what is happening in my pants? <laughs> I mean, mine was. I mean, if we're going, if we're going pure purity wise. Little Women, hands down, because I was in love with Joe and I was in love with Christian Bale, the the ninety four version, and also, but sexy time wise, the yeah. Astronaut's Wife. <laughs> Inter- okay, interesting. Huh. So. 
Here's my final final quote <laughs> uh, right. to wrap this. I feel this. like I'm learning about you. Rewatch The Astronaut's Wife and you'll find the part that <laughs> changed my life. Here, here's, right. here's my final final quote to fully wrap this up. This is from that EW article. While the crew figures out how to get him from the terrace into the pool with a minimum of danger, DiCaprio balances on the precipice. I don't know if I'm ever getting married, he says. I'm probably not going to get married unless I live with somebody for 10 or 20 years. But these people took a chance, and they did it. We don't have the balls that Romeo did. DiCaprio clings to the rail and begins to moonwalk, a la Michael Jackson. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, crap, Jesus, he mumbles as his foot slips through the trellis. This sucks. It is what a, a profound quote. Fun to watch with. interviews of him from yes. this time period because yeah, yeah. I will say, right after this, when they were doing all the promo for this movie, he was in the middle of making Titanic, and so people like there was this one like MTV interview, and they're like, "You're gonna be on a boat," and, and he's just like, "Yeah, it's like really hard." And like, how hard could? Oh, you're. He's like, "I'm not on a yacht. It's a Titanic." Yeah. It's a difficult movie to make. Uh, yeah, I imagine it was a little tricky whenever you're like dying in a boat crash. Oh, don't worry. I'm sure we'll do it at some point. So much I, water. I mean, I'll still watch the I'm fuck sure out of we'll Titanic. All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us for Pop History. We'll be back, I'm sure, very soon. Until then, uh, check our Patreon out, patreon.com forward slash page of a podcast. Check out my Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho. Natalie? Uh, I have a new show coming out called Someplace Underneath uh, right in the next week or so. All and, right. Uh, noise. Find that on the Last Podcast Network, and you can follow me at The Daddy Gene. Fantastic. Jackie? Be not so long to speak, I long to die. <laughs> I'm going to call my mom and tell her that right now. <laughs> um, my name is Jackie Zabrowski. You follow me on Instagram at JackThatWorm. And um, check out our Patreon for Page 7. It is patreon.com forward slash Page 7 podcast. All right. Thanks, everybody, and have a good one. Bye, cuties. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.